and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Christmas can be both joyous and overwhelming. Wherever we found you, we're glad you chose to make this Advent sermon part of your holiday season. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Jenny Forrester is going to come and she's going to read for us um, from this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 1, 6 through 11. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeram. And Jeram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. She could have said, and even this is the word of the Lord, right? Because we we read something like that and we go, is this inspired? Yeah, it is. Genealogies matter. There's a lot to glean from this one, in fact, and maybe you uh, picked up on that last week and, and will again this week. But let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. This is a prayer just simply to ask God to illumine our hearts, to speak God's, uh, his, his truth through his word into our hearts. So let's read. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You know, I I think it's pretty obvious to us if we stop and think about it that uh, really throughout all of human history, we as men and women and mankind, we have been very enamored with kings, kingships, kingdoms, queens, princes, princesses. It's, uh, it's been uh, pro- probably the most predominant narrative in human history. Uh, just a year ago, right now, I was about to look at my watch, don't have it on, the date is the 10th, and it was, yeah, a year ago, uh, this month, this date, I was in Cairo, and one of the one of the things that we did is that we naturally we went to the pyramids where some of the kings were buried. Ancient kings of Egypt were buried, and, uh, and near that is a museum where they have um, I don't remember how many twenty, thirty, maybe mummies of these kings of old. And there was a part of me that was fascinated as we read about each one of these. And there was a part of me that was also like, we are staring at bodies that have been uh, lifeless for a couple thousand years, if not longer. And yet at the same time, man, the place was flooded. Everybody wanted to see these dead kings. And we wanted to know their story. 
Who ruled when and what did they do and what did they not do and were they good or were they bad and did they do this? And who was, who was the Pharaoh when the Exodus happened? Like that was my biggest question, trying to figure that out. We're enamored with kings. Just a quick perusal of Netflix and the like. And you, and you see what shows are being watched, what shows are out there to be watched. And just before I get any emails, I've only seen one of these and it's The King's Speech that was a great movie uh, a few years ago, but the rest of these I have not seen. I am not, hear me, I'm not condoning them, okay? I don't know if they're good or bad. I don't know what's in them. I'm just going by the title, okay? Did I make that clear? Okay. <laughs> this is what's on right now. I mean, you just, just a quick little word search. The Last Kingdom. Game of Thrones, The King's Speech, I mentioned that one. The Spanish Princess, Victoria, The Queen, Reign, The Tudors, The Crown, Bridgerton, and I just stopped at that point. I could have listed more. We wanna watch shows and movies that deal with kings and queens and monarchies and kingdoms and princesses and princes and all the things. And, and Disney, how did Disney make its fortune on, on stories about Kingdoms, princesses, my girls, when they were little, all they wanted to do was dress up as Elsa and Anna. That's all they did do. We have video after video of Elsa and Anna in our home singing, let it go. <laughs> to the point of nausea, but, I, we, but we loved it. We loved it. We really did. What was the other song? It was another one. Yeah, how to, uh, let me build a snowman, whatever it was. Anyway, they were all just sung over and over. How, uh, what's the name of it? I'm not saying it right. Do you want to build a snowman? Thank you, thank you. But think about it. Uh, the Lion King, which I still consider the greatest Disney movie, was about, it's about a king. All of them, some type of kingdom, usually a princess in some type of despair, a prince who needs to rescue them, under the rule of a bad queen or king or, you know, those kind of narratives. We're enamored with them. We will watch those every single time or read books about them. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. They make for good stories, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's because God hardwired us for this. Here's what I mean. I, I, I think God made us, I think the scriptures make clear that God made us to long for kingly authority. It's in our bones, it's in our blood, it's in our DNA, it's, it's what we long for. The problem is, is that every king and every kingdom and every queen and every monarchy, every time from the beginning until now has let us down. It's been an imperfect rule and reign except for one, that's why you and I are here. It's kind of the point of church. To say and to declare, even as we have this morning, it was in the lyrics that we sang, that there is one king, there's one righteous king, there's one good king, and there is one king who rules and reigns over it all, and we submit to him, and his name is Jesus. He is the one king who leads his people, both individually and corporately, in the words of 2 Corinthians, in triumphal procession, both now and in part, and to come in full. He is the victorious one. 
And he is the one that gives us what our hearts ultimately long for, because it is, like I said, it's, it's built into us to long for kingly authority, but yet we're always disappointed and felt lacking. But in Jesus, he actually brings the flourishing and the peace and the shalom that we long for, and he brings it inwardly, and he is bringing it through us, albeit a bit secretly, and he will bring it in full. As we think about this genealogy, Matthew chapter one, I said last week there's two threads that, that Matthew is, is pulling, if you will, throughout this first chapter. And the first one that we looked at last week is that he is the fulfillment of the promise, the covenant of Abraham. That is so very important to Matthew's Jewish audience for them to know and understand from the get-go that just as promised that there would be an offspring of Abraham, that it would be through his offspring that all nations would be blessed and that the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would rescue the king, that he would come from Abraham, that he would be a direct descendant from Abraham. So one of the very first things that Matthew wants to do for his Jewish readers is he wants to prove and show he's from Abraham. But the second thread that he's pulling is the promise of a king like David. Because David was the greatest of kings for Israel. One of the greatest kings the world has ever known. But even more than his kingship that was so good and so excellent in so many ways, imperfect, yes, is that again, the promised Messiah the promised savior, the one who would come to rescue would be from the line of David. This is the thread that he's pulling. We looked at Abraham last week. If you missed that one, go back and, and listen to it. I would encourage you. And this week he's pulling that thread of the, the king comes from the line of David, who is the great king. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Here's five things that uh, if we kind of look at the grand scope of scripture, uh, what would God, might, what might he say to us about his kingship, about the fact that he's king and our response to him as our king? Here's the first thing that I think he would say. And we have to go back to the beginning, just like we have been in all these sermons. He's, he's, he would say this, I am your king, rule and reign like me. Think about this. This is interesting. This is where the Bible starts in terms of our story in God's kingdom. It starts, and the verse that we really see this starting in is, is chapter one of Genesis, right at the very, very beginning of the story, in verse 28. This is right after we get the very famous verse of verse 26 that, and 27 that God made us, man and woman, in his image, in his likeness, that in a very profound, beautiful way that he's created us as the crown jewel of his creation such that not only are we on the earth as his creation, but we are to mirror him. We are to image him. We are to be like him. And there's a lot of ways in which we do that in the way that we have a, a, a will 
and we have freedom of choice, and we, and we have uh, different ways about our character that mimic his character, and, and, and certainly even at some level, the ways in which we have hands mimic him, not in bodily form because he's a spirit, but that it, he's able in some mysterious way to touch and to feel, and we have feet. He's able to move, and he's omnipresent, and we are able to move. We're not omnipresent, but we can be in different places. There's lots of ways that we image God, but one of the ways, in fact, the first way Right after he tells us that we are made in his image, the very first thing, the very first commandment that he gives man and woman is actually kingly. Listen to it. Verse 28 of Genesis chapter one says this. He says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you catch it? This is rule and reign type language. In other words, this is God saying, I'm your king. I rule over it all. I rule over all the cosmos, all the universe, heaven and earth, and everything in between is mine. Now, this earth, I rule over it too. But you, as my image bearers, those who are made like me, I've put you on the earth and the very first thing that I want you to be about, the very first thing, first commandment we ever got, be like me in ruling and reigning over the earth. You ever thought about that? This is, again, it's part of our DNA. We want to rule and reign. The problem is we, we messed it all up. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And so we rule and reign in so many imperfect ways. But in the, in the beginning of the story, before sin came into our hearts and into the world and wrecked everything, this was good. This was how God designed it, that he would be the king and we would be king-like in the sense of that we would image him and be like him in having dominion. Over, over the earth. I mean, he, he told Adam in Genesis 2.15, as, as we see that he gave this commandment to Adam and then once Eve was created out of Adam, this commandment applied to her as well. But in, in Genesis 2.15, he says he put Adam, he put man in the garden and then he gave him a command. He said, work it and keep it. Meaning, take what I have created, cultivate it. Make it beautiful. Reign over it such that you bring about out of it even more glory to the king. Make it even more beautiful. Because isn't that what good kings do? They bring out flourishing. They bring out beauty. They bring out the ways in which we are designed to be what we were made to be in God, in his likeness. And so we are to be kingly in that. And it was a beautiful thing. And it's still a part of our DNA. But the second thing that God would say to us from the pages of scripture is this, I am your king, but you've rejected me. And there in the garden, as we keep going back to it over and over again, to keep reminding us this is what was good and then this is what happened and what happened was not good. What was not good is this. In the heart of our hearts, 
represented by our first parents, Adam and Eve. We rejected God. And we still do. Because what was it that was really being said in the taking of the fruit? In the taking of the fruit by Eve and by Adam who was with her, really what, what was being expressed in that gesture was yes, they were believing a lie from the enemy and yes, they were being deceived and yes, they should have had a little bit better understanding of who they were in the image of God and all those kind of things. But what was really displayed in the ultimate taking and eating of the fruit was this, uh, God, you're not a good king. You've created us and you've created all this, but you've kept something from us and if you're keeping something from us, if you're keeping this one tree with its fruit, whatever that fruit was, it, it must not be, it must be something that you're keeping from us, which means that you must not be a good king. That was all at play in the heart there. Secondarily, not only is, is the, the, the posture of Adam and Eve such that says, God, you're not a good king, but the second part of that is this, I'm a better king than you are, God. I can rule and reign my life and this world better than you. That's what's on display in the Garden of Eden as sin enters into the heart of mankind. This embracing of the lie, yes, but what does the lie produce? It produces a self-righteousness that rejects God as king because who wants to be king? We do. And we believe that God is ultimately not a good king because God, I don't know why you would keep the tree from me, but it must not be for my good. I'm a better king. What do we do today? There's a lot in this life that I don't understand, God. I don't know why you put this tree, so to speak, in my life that I don't understand. I don't know why you're keeping it from me. To me, it seems good that I could have that. To me, it seems good that I wouldn't have this, but you've let it happen. God, you're not good. I'm a better king. We think God is keeping good things from us and allowing bad things happen to us. And our conclusion is, is in our finite, minuscule minds compared to his, our, our conclusion is he's not a good king. And we are. So we operate out of that deep, deep deception. And so this is the story of Israel. This is what Israel does is that once sin, or his, uh, sin has entered the heart of mankind, God continues to remain faithful to his people. And we looked last week where he, he enters into covenant with this man named Abram, that he changes his name to, to Abraham. And through Abraham, he gives this amazing promise that through you, all nations will be blessed in the seed of you, the, the offspring of you. There's one coming who, when I promised in Genesis 3 that there would be one of the seed of Eve, now it's coming through this seed of Abraham and he will be the one that crushes the head of the serpent who deceived us. And he, and he makes this incredible gesture of saying, when you won't keep the covenant, when you won't be faithful to me as king, I will be faithful to you. What does Israel do? The descendants of Abraham, us, what do we do? <laughs> we keep telling God we don't want him as king. We keep rejecting him, even though he's been so very faithful. This is the story in a nutshell of Israel because uh, God remains faithful to them through, uh, through the, the years of slavery, 400 years 
years of slavery in Egypt and he leads them out in a miraculous way in the splitting of the sea and the plagues and all those things and he leads them through the wilderness and he gives them the promised land and yet they still say it's not enough. They don't want to be unique. They don't want to be different. God is the one who says, you are set apart from every other kingdom and country. Why? Because I'm your king. Every other kingdom, every other place, every other dwelling, every other tribe, they have their own leaders. They have their own kings and queens, but I'm your king. And they say, that's not enough for us. God provides judges and he, goes, he, he does a lot of different things to keep providing for them. And they keep saying, it's not enough, God, until it comes to a head. In 1 Samuel chapter eight, when they finally had enough and they demand and they demand and they demand, God, give us an earthly king. You're not enough, you're not enough, you're not enough. And so finally they go to Samuel, who was a prophet then. They go to Samuel when he's about to die and they say this. In 1 Samuel eight, they say, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We, we don't wanna be different. We don't wanna be set apart. We just give us a king like everybody else. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you. Here it is. But they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That would be Saul, the first king of Israel. And he would not be a good king. We have to see and understand that Israel's story of rejecting God as their king and just wanting a normal everyday king like every other country, every other kingdom, every other nation. It's not just a story from history that we observe. It's actually the story of our hearts that we need to embrace. We're just like Israel. At every turn, our nature, that the Bible calls sin nature, apart from God's grace and work in our lives, we have we do and we will reject God as king over us. It's been that way since the garden. God says, I'm your king, but you've rejected me. But just like we studied last week, when we wouldn't be faithful, when he put Abraham over to the side and put him in a deep sleep so that he could pass through the ripped apart animals with the blood in between to say, I will be faithful even when you're not, God does something Amazing. He says, thirdly, he says, I'm your king. Even though you've rejected me, I'm your king. Yet I, I'll give you a human king like me. And he's talking about David. Because God, after Saul was such a train wreck of a king, God in his grace, this is a measure of God's grace upon grace upon grace, because the Israelites did not deserve a good king. But God in his grace gives David, and David is a good king. He's not a perfect king. We know the stories. He killed a man on the battlefield so he could sleep with his wife. We, we know the stories, adulterer, murderer. He was not a good man. He was desperately in need of a savior just like you and me, but he was a good king. 
imperfectly good, but good. What did David do? What was his kingship? Well, he time and time again, he ruled. He ruled with grace, but yet with power. He, he saved Israel from their enemies. Time and time again through David and through God through David, uh, over and over again, the enemies of Israel were, were done away with. In his reign, in his rule, his dominion was a good one. And under David's rule and reign, oh my goodness, did Israel flourish. And so God gave David to Israel so that they would experience in the short term the reality of a good king because God is a good king. And, he's, and David is like God in that way. He's a man after God's own heart. But there was something much more, way more at play in God giving David to Israel. Because David, David is one who would foreshadow. He is one who would forecast, if, if you will, that there's one coming from his offspring that would be the true Davidic king. Listen to the promise that God made David when he was old in 1 Samuel 7. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 7. He said this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. There's that key word. It's there at the beginning in Genesis 3 when sin is minutes old and God promises, hey, there's gonna be an offspring of the seed of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. And then we get a little bit more uh, understanding when he says, uh, Abraham, there'll be a seed, an offspring of you that will bless all nations. And now it gets a little bit more narrow down to David where he says, it'll be a, I will raise up your offspring after you who, you shall come from your, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, it's important to understand because it can get confusing that oftentimes in Old Testament prophecy where God is promising something is going to happen, in one breath to the next, God moves sometimes in these prophecies from the immediate to the eternal. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We see this happen in Isaiah a lot. We see this happen in Jeremiah and other prophets. We see it happening here where God is promising something to David and in the same breath, he's promising the immediate what will happen with Solomon, his son, as king at that day and time and what will happen with the one who is to come from his line and his eternal kingdom. Watch, watch how that goes back and forth because he says this, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Solomon in the first breath, Jesus in the next. Solomon's gonna build a temple of the house of the Lord. He's gonna establish through Solomon in the continued line of David, one whose kingdom will last forever, Jesus. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, Solomon, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. Now he's going back to Jesus. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God is making a promise, a gracious promise that, hey, I'm your king, 
you don't want me, so I'm giving you earthly kings. You don't deserve any good kings, but I'm giving you the best of kings, but he's still insufficient, but he's pointing to one. This David, who you think is the greatest, did you notice, by the way, in the, in the genealogy in verse six, it says, at the very end of verse six, it says, uh, or at the end of that sentence, and Jesse, the father of David, who? The king. Well, there's like 10 other kings listed in here. But they don't get the title the king. It was David. David got the title the king. Why? Because they look back on David and they say, there'll never be another one like him until the one from his seed, from his offspring comes. The true and better David. The one who will reign even more effectively than David did because who is Jesus? Remember what we said about David? David is the one who, David is the one who saves his people from their enemies. And he's the one that rules in such a way that the people flourish. Well, David's saving of, from, from the enemies of Israel was temporary, it was incomplete. They flourished for 40 years under him, but then he died. And his rule and his reign and the flourishing of his people, it was, it was, just, it was just during that time. But within a century of the death of David, they were falling apart. The kingdom had divided and nothing was going well. But who is Jesus? The true and better David, the one from the line of David who would come and he would do what David did, but even more infinitely and majestically good and better. Why? Because he saves his people from their enemy, but not the physical enemies of God's people. That'll come later. It's from the greatest of enemies. Sin, death, Satan himself. Jesus is the true and better David comes to save even more powerfully and more profoundly than David did. His salvation, David's salvation was incomplete. Incomplete, Jesus's is complete. The rule and reign of David, the rule and reign of David was temporary. This true and better David who comes from his line, his rule and reign is eternal. This gracious God doesn't just give us a king like him. The fourth thing he tells us, as we've already been discussing, is he says, I'm your king and I give you one who is me. I'm the only one. No earthly king born of man and woman can rectify this situation. There has to be a king who comes. And before he comes as the conquering king, he has to first come as the servant king, born of a woman, yes, but born of the Holy Spirit. Because the only way this sin nature within us can be rectified, the only way death can be defeated, the only way in which the greatest of enemies for all mankind can be destroyed is through the God-man, the Christ, who through his life and through his death and through his resurrection does what David couldn't even begin to do, to put all the enemies of God under his feet and crush the head of the serpent and bring flourishing to his people. The flourishing that you long for, 
that longing that we have to be under good kingly authority will not be realized until you submit to Jesus as king. And the flourishing that you long for may not come circumstantially, but it will absolutely come inwardly now. Peace I give to you, Jesus promised. Not as the world gives peace, but as I give it. In this world, you will have great trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. This baby that was born in Bethlehem was no ordinary king. He was the king who came to save his people from their sins, as his name indicates, and to rule and reign forever. This is the point of Matthew 1.1. You remember last week you said, you know, we in modern day, uh, we, we probably couldn't fathom a more boring way to start a book. With, with this, you know, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, we just wanna jump straight to the action. When was he born? Where was he born? Where are the wise men? When did they show up? But to a Jewish first century audience, this is the most profoundly invigorating way to start it because what he's saying right off the top is the one that you've been waiting for, the one that was promised from Abraham, the one that is the, that is the true and better king like David, but even better, it's this guy. And the people back then, they missed it. Why? Because they're like, okay, so this, this nothing little boy that was born to these nothing parents uh, in this nothing little town uh, in Bethlehem in, the, in, a, in, a, in a food trough for animals and then they go live in this nothing little town called Nazareth. And this, this is the long awaited one and the whole book of Matthew, the rest of Matthew is, is building upon verse one. The whole book is answering yes. Absolutely. The one from Abraham, the one from David, it's actually Jesus. Will you believe it? Will you believe him? Because here's the end of the story. It's not just that he came to rescue us from our sins and that he came to rule and reign forever. The fifth thing that he says to, this, to us is this, I am your king, reign with me. <laughs> Do you see the full circle nature of it all? What did he design in the beginning? What did he say in Genesis 1? He said, I'm your king, rule and reign like me. What does he say in the end? <laughs> Shockingly, I am your king, rule and reign with me. I mean, look at scripture, look at what it says. These are just a couple of places where we see this. There's more, but it says this, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, the, the saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, listen, here it is, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. This faithful God is taking us somewhere and it's not out there somewhere, it's actually with him when he returns. I mean, yes, if you die in Christ right now, you're with him in heaven. Your spirit is with him in heaven, but when he returns, it is a real bodily new heavens and new earth, physical, just as real as we're sitting here today. And we will reign with him as he rules as the good king, the true and better David. We, in some way that we have no idea what this will look like, it'll be like the garden, but better. The garden of even but better, where he says, I am your king. Don't just rule like me, rule with me. And for all of eternity, 
We will dwell in the new heavens and new earth right here. I mean, maybe not John's Creek, but somewhere here. With Christ. Flourishing with no sin, with no death, under the rule and the reign and the dominion of King Jesus forever. That's what he promises. And he has yet to break a promise. Listen to Revelation 5, 9 and 10. It says, and they sang a new song. This is a picture of what it'll be like. It's what we have to look forward to. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood, your, your ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And what did you do with these people? And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Look, we don't follow Jesus because we get to reign. That's not the point. The point is we're like him and we want to reign, but every time we try to reign, we mess it up and it's a train wreck and it's awful, but he's the only one who's a good king and he's returning and his kingdom is actually here now and it's in us. When you believe upon Christ, you are in the kingdom of God and his kingdom is coming now, but it's very subversive. It's very secret. People in the world don't really see it or notice it, but it's coming. And it's coming through God's people and through his church, but there will be a day when it will be obvious. And when he came the first time as a little baby in a manger and a suffering servant to die on the cross for our sins, he'll come a second time on a triumphant horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes aflamed and people will be terrified, but, but his people will recognize him and will say, there's the king. There's the king coming once and for all. And I don't know what it's gonna look like and it's not the whole reason that I follow him, but I just know this, that in some profound, mysterious way, I and you and me, if we're in Christ, we're gonna reign with him and it's all going to be made well. So what do we do with this? We asked the question last week, we kind of do this whole scanning from Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation and this kind of biblical theology thing going on. It's so, okay, what do we, how does this affect me tomorrow? What about Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? What am I supposed to do with this? Well, here, here's two things very briefly. One is this, every single day, every single day, recognize that you're a terrible king of your life. Recognize that you and I, we're terrible kings. When we try to do the very thing that we've been trying to do since the beginning, since the Garden of Eden, when we try to say, God, you're not a good king, I'm a better king, when we do that, it doesn't go well. Recognize that just because you don't understand what God is doing as the good king in your life doesn't mean that he's not a good king. It's what faith is, it's what trust is. But secondly, and this might sound just really simplistic, but we need to hear it. First, recognize that you and I are bad kings. Secondly, embrace Jesus as your king. Once for salvation, yes, there's some that are perhaps listening who, who've never trusted him as king. They've never submitted themselves to his rule and reign and have said, uh, I can't, <laughs> I clearly can't do anything with this life that you've given me, God. Would you rescue me? Would you save me? You're my king. So this once for salvation, but then even once you're in the faith, once you've had that, that submission to him as king, first 
and your salvation is sure, it's still a daily reality because every single day, even as Christians, you will wake up and that old nature, that sin nature, man, it'll try. Every single day throughout the day, it'll try to take control again and you will seek to be your own king. And so what is Christian living? At a base level, Christian living is this. I'm gonna die every day throughout the day to stop being king of my life and to trust the one who is the king. Recognize that you and I are bad kings. Embrace every single day, throughout the day, the true king. Father, would you help us do that? Would you help us understand the story even of how we ended up where we are? Why we are so enamored with stories of kings and kingdoms and monarchies and so forth? And why we don't so desperately need you, Jesus, as the true and better David, the great king that you are. Help us to submit to you. Help us to die to ourselves, to follow you, and find the joy, find the flourishing that we long for under your reign. We thank you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. And let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.